Before we dive into this episode, we should note that this episode contains themes that may be upsetting to some listeners, with references to self-harm, violence, and substance abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Being locked up like that, you start to feel like you're losing your mind. Your only contact with another human is through a food slot. Days turn into nights, turn into days, and you have no idea if you'll ever get out. If you aren't broken, when they put you in the hole, you're broken when they take you up. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. And this meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we're so grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore the topic of health in prisons, we also ask our listeners to learn more about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression and the exploitation of Indigenous peoples that persist to this day. The Indigenous community is disproportionately represented in the Canadian correctional system, making up over 30% of the federal prison population. As a result of Canada's colonial history, Indigenous peoples have been subjected to assimilation policies and practices that have brought systemic consequences, including inadequate housing, employment, child support, and educational opportunities. And the combination of these factors contribute to increased contact with the criminal justice system. Federal offenders are excluded from the Canada Health Act and are not covered by Health Canada or provincial healthcare systems. So the Correctional Service of Canada is responsible for providing all essential physical and mental health services directly to offenders that are in federal prisons. But do they? Justin Ling, author of a McLean's piece titled Houses of Hate, How Canada's Prison System is Broken, said that by nearly every metric, the nation's penal system is not just failing, it's making things worse. The federal correction system acknowledges that they face serious capacity, accessibility, quality of care, and health service delivery challenges. Among these are a lack of mental health care units, support for elderly inmates, and harm reduction strategies. In this episode, we explore the delivery and access to healthcare services in the Canadian correctional system, as well as the challenges faced by individuals when reintegrating into society. My name is Atifa. And I'm Kayvon. This is episode 102 of Raw Talk Podcast. My name is Lawrence De Silva. I'm an ex-federal offender. I served 19 years in federal custody. I now work with the John Howard Society as a consultant for many issues inside of prison. From your experience, what would most people be surprised to hear about healthcare in prison? I think you'd be surprised that if you do have a serious condition as a citizen, you might not get assistance for that for a long time. If you've caught a sentence when you were a 40-year-old and it's life, your hip is out, you have serious knee injuries, you need hip replacement, you might not get that. Thankfully, now the John Howard Society has the ability to act as agents for these individuals 
who have medical conditions right now, but this is only recent and it's only brand new and there's still so much to go, right? We have to remember as a society that even though if you're not in jail, you might know these individuals. These are our family members. They're your brothers or they're your sisters or they're your uncles, they're your aunts, they're our fathers and they're our mothers. With this being said, we have to know that even if you're placed into those states, we should be expecting that we should have the same protections and applications as citizens do outside. The reason being, the legislation speaks for this. When you're arrested and you're given a sentence, you have the rights as every other citizen within this country, okay? You don't forfeit those rights. You just lose your right to freedom. As you just heard, Lawrence is a consultant at the John Howard Society, an organization that is aimed at providing programs and services that help incarcerated individuals. Next, we speak to Catherine Latimer, who is the executive director of the John Howard Society. She tells us more about what the John Howard Society does for inmates navigating the prison healthcare system across Canada. It's a charity, it's sort of a federated structure, and we probably serve about 60 communities across the country with various John Howards. We're all committed to just, effective, and humane responses to the causes and consequences of crime. I'm with the national office, and it has a specific role more on sort of the national policies and the law reform and trying to improve the conditions of people in federal institutions. We'd love to understand a bit more what healthcare services are currently provided and what is lacking. You raise an excellent question. In fact, we are bringing yet another charter challenge to indicate that the healthcare services that are provided by the Correctional Services of Canada are unconstitutional. We find that they are lacking in a variety of ways, but basically they lead to an inferior healthcare for people who are imprisoned than people on the outside. We think there are two major reasons why there's an unconstitutionality here. One is that federal prisoners only are specific excluded from the definition of insured person under the Canada Health Act. They do not get the protections of the universal health care principles that apply to, to just about everybody else. Secondly, the federal government, specifically the Correctional Service of Canada, is required to establish the health care regime for prisoners. So you're basically having the jailer being ultimately responsible for the health care of the prisoners. And that leads to a couple of problems from our perspective. One, we think it's ultra-virus. We think that it's the Constitution really invests health care responsibilities to the provinces and not to the federal governments. Secondly, it results in a regime of health care that violates the charter rights of prisoners. We think it denies them Section 7 rights, and Section 7 relates to security of life, liberty, and security of the person. We think it violates Section 12, which is the right to be protected from cruel treatment. We think it violates Section 15 in that we've carved out federal prisoners as being subjected to this regime, whereas others are not excluded from the definition of insured person under the Canada Health Act. Since federal offenders are excluded from the Canada Health Act and are not covered by Health Canada or provincial health care systems, the quality of care they receive is significantly different in prisons across Canada. Lawrence tells us more about the difficulties in accessing care while in prison. 
One of the major things, just to point out on that, the politicians are now passing a bill to try to force the service to act in a way where it provides a rate of lowering the recidivism between inmates coming out. Their focus has to be on the complacency of how the individual is being affected in the states of being detained by agents of the state. When you have direct knowledge that a person has asthma, we don't use noxious substance against that person. Even if there's a standoff, try to talk the person down because that person can die from an asthma attack. If a person needs to get through hip surgery, we have to do that. When myself and Catherine Latimer had to act as patient advocacy for inmates who are inside, one being one of my friends, he's an older man, he's constantly in pain. And that agitates when you're in pain from your hip and your back already suffering from MS. He was diagnosed with MS when he first came in the service of Canada. And that was 25, it's about 35 years right now. He's been in custody. They'd known that he's had MS this whole time and they've done nothing to treat it. Nothing. There's not one treatment that CSC could say that it's provided to this individual. I know what we did as individuals committing crimes was wrong. There's nothing that was acceptable about someone committing crimes within the society, but there's that's why they're judged and sent to these facilities. If we don't take care of the citizens, because they're still citizens who are incarcerated, then they lose their rights. They lose their protections. We, John Howard Society, we have a handful of prisoners who have some pretty serious health conditions who contact us. It's become a bit more complicated for us in that sometimes the medical condition hasn't been diagnosed. The ones where there are most problems, from my perspective, is where there is an ongoing chronic problem or chronic disease that requires a level of management that the health care in the prison is unable to provide. One of our patients that we provide advocacy for is an insulin-dependent diabetic. He contacted us one day to say that they had cut him off his medication and he was told that he wasn't going to receive medication for a week. Now, if you're an insulin-dependent diabetic, getting cut off your medication for a week is a life-threatening sort of situation. Some of it is quite alarming and shocking, and sometimes it's miscommunication. Sometimes you can straighten that out by communicating that this prisoner has been told he's not getting his medication, and without that, he's going to be in serious trouble. Other times, it's difficult to know what the medical problem is, particularly for us who are not medically trained at all. We don't know why the person continues to faint. We don't know whether the tests or diagnostic tests that should be done have been done or whether on the outside he would be getting a different set of tests or attention than he's getting on the inside. We also spoke with Dr. Kiran Patel, a staff psychiatrist within the Forensic Division of the Complex Care and Recovery Program at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Dr. Patel provides enhanced triage and case management services to inmates at Toronto South Detention Centre and the Vanier Correctional Centre for Women. He shares his experience about what it's like to work within the correctional facilities. Correctional facilities are a unique environment. They're very different from any other type of public or healthcare setting. The driver of those facilities is processing of individuals through their criminal justice pathway and safety and security being the most important things when policies and procedures are developed and implemented. Healthcare is a subsidiary of the primary uh, focus of correctional facilities. But we know that the healthcare needs of this population, both physical health care and mental health care, is much greater than the general 
population. And we try to influence some of the practical measures that the institution takes in managing these individuals. So, for example, we've introduced and supported through the province to introduce something called the Brief Jail Mental Health Screener, which means every person who comes into the institution gets screened for mental health difficulties right from their entry point. Based on the outcome of that screen, we are able to take on that person for a more detailed assessment called the Jail Screening Assessment Tool. And this involves a 45 to 60 minute interview with a mental health professional to further understand and delineate that individual's mental health needs. And that follows on by an actual psychiatric assessment by a physician. And through that, we're able to get a very clear understanding of those individuals who need the highest level of mental health care. As an example, if from a correctional lens, a person is behaving in a way that is deemed high risk, they are physically aggressive, they are behaviorally disturbed, they require placement in the highest level of security within the institution, it may well be that the healthcare professional or the physician will be on their knees or sitting on the floor talking to this individual either through the door or through the hatch where meal deliveries occur. If that's how we have to do an assessment, then that's how we do it. Within this environment, if assessments are delayed until you can see them in an interview room, a lot of sick people won't get the intervention they need. We have to adjust our expectations, adjust our working practices to meet the needs of the people we serve. It's no secret that the Canadian prison system is highly racialized. At the same time, these individuals will have a much harder time reintegrating into society due to the lack of services and support. According to public data published in the journal Race and Justice, Nearly one out of every 15 young black men in Ontario has experienced jail time compared to one in 70 young white men. Early in 2020, the Correctional Investigator of Canada issued a news release indicating that the number of Indigenous individuals under federal sentence had reached historic highs, six to seven times higher than the national average. Dr. Patel tells us more about the overrepresentation of these communities within corrections and the few resources that have been recently made available to support these individuals. Absolutely. There is a significant overrepresentation of both those groups, Indigenous prisoners and Black prisoners. The increased overrepresentation, should I say, of Black prisoners within corrections and Indigenous prisoners is a reflection of difficulties at several steps along the pathway. You're more likely to be arrested if you're Black or Indigenous. You're more likely to get a remand order as opposed to a a bail or a release order on your own recognizance. If you do get a release order or bail, you're more likely to breach and then get a subsequent uh, remand order and so on. So each of the steps add to the overrepresentation within corrections. This is something that we understand, we're aware of, and we try to both provide the best possible care to all prisoners, but also to add in the unique needs of Indigenous prisoners and Black prisoners. For example, within the Toronto South Detention Centre, there is a specific unit which has been dedicated 
to indigenous prisoners to further allow them to utilize indigenous practices and access to indigenous elders, for example. Even across the institution, efforts are being made to support that. When it comes to Black prisoners, we are trying to allow culture-specific interventions and culture-specific resources to be made available to those prisoners to enhance their ability to engage and receive care from services and to ensure that those continue when they return to the community after their time in jail ends. Just shifting gears in the conversation for a moment, how do the healthcare services and issues within the Canadian correctional system differ between males and females? Well, they're both pretty crap, I guess I would have to say (laughs) as a bottom line. There has been considerably more attention addressed to some of the issues that women experience in correctional system. For example, they have a mother and baby program at least theoretically they do. I don't know the extent to which women are being able to be with their infants. Theoretically, that's brought in. There's nothing like that for men. The female institutions are a lot smaller. About 6% of the federal prison population are women and the rest of it are men. There's obviously some sensitivities uh, around gender that are not captured by these strict divisions between male and female institutions, but that's probably another story. But because they're in smaller institutions, I think there's probably an easier access to get attention to some of their medical needs. The mental institutions, they tend to be a bit more rough and tumble. For example, one of the things that many of us had been complaining about is that those who are on med parade, so those who need medicine in some institutions have to line up outside in order to get their meds. So if you can imagine if your relative was in a senior's home and they had bronchial infection and needed antibiotics or they had pneumonia or they needed one thing or another, what you would think if they had to line up outside in order to get their medication. It just seems unnecessarily rigid and tough to require people to do that who are already ill. I don't know if you find that at the women's institution, but that you'll find in the men's institutions. It's very challenging. As our guest explained, finding proper care in correctional facilities can be very difficult. So where does someone go when they have concerns about their health? And who is held accountable for the lack of care? Lawrence and Catherine share some examples that highlight the lack of accountability in these settings. They certainly get you in a conflict there because, for example, Lawrence, when he was treated uh, with a certain medical regime in one federal prison, then he was moved to another federal prison and they cut his medication upon arrival. And he was saying, why have you done this? I have been stable on this medication for seven years. You haven't done any tests. You haven't examined me. And now you've cut my medication. Why did you do that? And he got a very terse response saying, essentially, that's the way we do it in this institution. And if you don't like it, you can go back to where you came from, which isn't exactly a patient-centric kind of approach to healthcare. If you wanted to complain about that doctor's treatment of the prisoner, correctional services will tell you to contact the College of Physicians and Surgeons. That doctor will be guided by their professional standards. If you contact the college, which I did, they said, oh, well, we usually suggest that prisoners 
prisoners contact the correctional investigator and the correctional investigator's office will point you back to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Now the College of Physicians and Surgeons will take a complaint, but as they point out, they're a provincially constituted body and they can't compel documents or testimony from the federal institutions. So in effect, the doctors who are treating prisoners are basically not held to any professional accountability standards. It's not good. Catherine, if I can just double back to on the issue of professional accountability for some of the physicians who are you know, called into care for inmates. Obviously, the Nelson Mandela rules were founded as sort of a baseline minimum standard for how inmates should be treated in correctional institutions. Do you foresee any kind of baseline sort of standard in discussion or perhaps in development or being proposed for accountability for physicians or other allied healthcare professionals? It's one of the reasons why we're challenging the healthcare regime that's in the federal institutions, because the doctors are not accountable. That's really not a good thing. And that's one of the reasons why the provinces under the constitution were given responsibility for healthcare, because they had responsibility for regulating the professions, which is vitally important to ensure that you've got an accountable and effective healthcare regime. In fact, there is a group right now that are reviewing the standards for Correctional Services of Canada in trying to establish so that they can be, is it registered or they can be certified or something of that nature. And I think that would go some distance if those standards were well articulated. And certainly having doctors who are accountable is important. The Correctional Services of Canada, or CSC, is responsible for overseeing the health services offered to individuals in prisons. Lawrence explains how separating the roles of the CSC and Health Canada could have a positive impact on the quality of healthcare services offered to those in prisons. I would like to see there be a complete separation. Until there's a complete separation from the agents of the state and the powers of the healthcare physicians provincially and their powers to go freely within these institutions without the fear of intimidation and to work alongside of CSC within situations that I'll explain momentarily. But uh, until that happens, there will not be a cure for this, for the sickness that is happening within the service itself. One of the main reasons of why I said the intimidation factors, I'll point out to the Ashley Smith case, clearly assigned a situational blame and factors of intimidation by staff towards healthcare staff. Healthcare staff have to run with guards to situations, wherever they may be. If there's a code, healthcare is alerted and they're ready to go down there to provide any service that they can. But if there's the intimidation factor with staff, inmates can't be helped until this happens until uh, CSC starts living by its principles that supposed to guide the service, which are openness, effectiveness, accountability, and integrity, until they start living by those and there be a separation, there'll be no cure for this sickness. I want the listeners to understand that inside of prison, security matters trump everything. And that's not right. Because even if there was a stabbing going on in one area of the institution, the stabbing doesn't go down for an hour. The situation goes down for a couple minutes. They fire gas. They remove the inmate. They place an inmate inside of a shower. And then they take the victim to the hospital once all the inmates are locked back up. When all of these things are happening, all the other side of the jail is locked down, even though you didn't do nothing. So there's always the assumption that what's happening over in this area in the institution should trump an inmate having 
his medication delivered to him by the healthcare staff that are in there. They have to be able to tell the guards, no, you need to take me. I need to go give this guy his meds. I'm responsible for this, giving this guy, taking this guy's blood pressure, even diabetes. Like if, if, if they're dangerous situations or even not being provided insulin. Because they're saying that we're on lockdown and healthcare can't get down here. When there's no separation, it's a very toxic mix. And it's harder for people who are trying to come back out into society better than what they went in. If you're subjected to torture every day while you're in there, be it by whatever ailment you have or condition that's not being treated, what hope are we providing to these people? Mental illness rates are about four to seven times higher among inmates than in the general population. Dr. Patel tells us more about the challenges in treating mental health patients within correctional facilities, and he also touches on the challenges of obtaining informed consent. There are challenges, but ultimately we start from the position of trying to respect their right. Prisoners, as anybody else, has a right to make uh, decisions, and all consent should be informed consent. Our starting position is to educate, to engage, and to advocate our thoughts regarding uh, treatment with our patient, just as we would if there were any other patient that we met with, whether that be in the community or uh, in an ED setting or wherever. The, the expectation is that we would work with that individual to try and get them the care that they need. The difficulty with access to the Healthcare Consent Act, where individuals may be so sick that they are not likely capable of making a treatment decision is another difficult point. The correctional setting is not geared up for individuals to have incapacity assessments because should a physician undertake such an assessment and make such a finding, the normal processes of that person getting rights advice, that person being able to appeal that decision to the consent and capacity board, those measures are not available within the correctional setting. You get often to the point where assent is the substitute for consent because if you refuse, it's very hard to declare you incapable and treat you without your consent, but with substitute decision-maker consent. Finally, I think people often don't recognize that from a Mental Health Act perspective, prisons and correctional settings are deemed to be outpatient settings. They are not hospitals. The application of the Mental Health Act, the application of the Healthcare Consent Act is as if the individual is in the community. But uniquely, it's even more tricky than that. As an example, if you see an individual in your office in the community, you would assess their mental state and their risks within that setting and say, well, this person has a mental health difficulty. They are presenting certain risks, and I think they would be certifiable under the Mental Health Act. You can then access the Mental Health Act such that that individual can get the care they need. Problem within a correctional setting is that although they may be presenting risks either to themselves or to others as a consequence of their mental condition, those risks can be managed 
by the environment and the setting in a way that if they were in the community that could not be managed. Hospital ER departments are quite perturbed by having individuals in orange jumpsuits with corrections officers with them. Ultimately, they don't manage them in perhaps the same way as somebody who is coming from the community generally. There is a strong driver to return them to the correctional setting as soon as possible. Even if somebody feels that they require ongoing inpatient hospital care, the disruption to general psychiatric units of having a prisoner with all the paraphernalia of corrections associated can be quite significant. Significant for the staff, significant for the other patient's on that unit who may be distressed by that, who may experience re-traumatization of their own past circumstances. It's incredibly difficult for people to access the care they need because of their correctional label. Dr. Patel explains how the exciting opportunity to lead and develop the Forensic Early Intervention Service at CAMH encouraged him to come to Canada. He shares more about the program and its achievements since its implementation. I worked with a team in developing mental health hostels and rehabilitation services in the community. I was enjoying all of those experiences uh, until I made the fortuitous decision to go to a conference where I met individuals who encouraged me to come to Canada. Once I'd met one person, I started to meet several others. What attracted me the most was the offer from the University of Toronto and CAMH, the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, to lead and develop a new correctional service in Ontario called the Forensic Early Intervention Service. I thought that was an incredibly uh, sort of opportune activity to bring across some of my skills, some of my experiences in the UK to enhance services in Canada. The mental health services within provincial corrections follow a much older model, which has been adapted and changed in many countries, uh, particularly in Europe, where you have a contracted forensic psychiatrist or correctional psychiatrist, and you have then employed uh, nurses and social workers and psychologists. The connection between the correctional psychiatrist the team uh, and outside agencies is uh, more limited than you would hope it to be. Uh, and we recognized that there were a lot of individuals within correctional settings who would have pathways out of the correctional setting into healthcare settings, but because of the way services had been set up, their ability to access and navigate those pathways was very limited. And so building on some research data that was created by Dr. Sandy Simpson and others in 2013, a proposal was put to the provincial government to develop a service which could better identify individuals within the correctional environment who had serious mental health problems, uh, allow more detailed and comprehensive assessment of those individuals and support pathways out of the correctional environment. So for example, because of individuals being unfit to stand trial 
or because individuals would be deemed not criminally responsible for their criminal actions as a consequence of mental illness. We started in the new jail, the Toronto South Detention Centre, as it opened in 2014, uh, and then expanded our service to the Vanier Centre for Women in 2017. We rapidly developed relationships with both the healthcare teams and correctional psychiatrists in the institution, but also the operational side, the corrections officers and others to embed our model such that we were providing an enhanced level of intervention, an enhanced level of care, and getting people who would, in other circumstances, have languished for long periods in the jail into uh, hospital settings. The correctional view of our service was skeptical to begin with, but when they saw how, how much of an enhancement there was and how some of the most challenging individuals within the correctional environment were being transferred to hospital because of our input, we made friends and allies very quickly. I would say this is probably one of the most significant weaknesses of the prison healthcare system is that many people are in there with underlying mental health issues. Many people who go into the prisons get mental health issues. I mean, it's anybody who goes into a prison, I go into the prison, I feel depressed, anxious. It's not a good place to be. But many have borne witness to acts of cruelty and acts of violence, which causes them to have PTSD, anxiety, depression. It's a very negative place in terms of your mental health anyway. So if you're going in there with any kind of existing mental health condition, it's going to be worsened by the prison experience. Many of them are diagnosed as having mental health challenges, whether that's ADHD or whether it's axis one schizophrenia. Some of them are how they were ever found fit to stand trial, let alone convicted, given their state of mental health impairment is beyond me. But some of the people who are quite actively psychotic will be in the federal prisons. It's a real challenge for the prison, and it's a real challenge for their federal fellow inmates, and it's a real challenge for the individuals who are not getting the help that they need and battling some pretty serious demons. Transfers of individuals between facilities may happen for a number of reasons. Our three guests highlight the negative impact these transfers have on inmates' overall health, well-being, and continuity of care. Individuals do move from institutions, but the movement is limited by their legal situation. When a person is arrested and charged with a crime, usually those individuals, if they get a remand order to corrections, will go to the nearest correctional institution. And the reason for that is the court that holds their case will be in that jurisdiction and the individual will be expected to go back and forth for hearings to that court. It is unusual at that point or at that stage, should I say, for individuals to move unless there is a particular reason, a security reason or current situation, uh, COVID outbreaks for them to move elsewhere. 
Once that person's case has been resolved, the situation is that they have been sentenced. At that point, individuals may move depending on where their home environment may be. They may move to another provincial setting closer to where they live or where their family resides. If they go to a federal setting, they've been sentenced to two years or more then they will be moved around based on the federal requirements. Because there is sort of a need for clinical handover, if there is a warning, if we know when a person is going to be moving or, or, and where they're going to be moving to, we do make efforts to hand over care to the receiving institution. But as I've described, it's not always possible to know. And if that is the situation, the receiving institution then has the onus to connect with the former one to say, well, this individual has arrived here. They've come from this institution. Can you let us know what the situation was and what the plan was so that we can continue that? I was moved a lot. You got to remember, I served 19 years and I didn't serve it. I didn't come into custody facing the 19 years thinking I'm going to go to a minimum or a medium. I knew what was awaiting me. I knew that they were going to throw me in a max and it was going to be a jungle because you heard the war stories that came out of the institution. So the psychological effect that it had on me moving into that was that I was going to protect myself at all costs, do whatever I needed to do to survive. You have to remember, when I first came into custody, I went from the reception side into Millhaven J unit, and there was already a series of stabbings that happened in the institution. When I went into the institution on the Mac side, this was against the mental health staff's valuation. They said, no, you should put Mr. De Silva in an open area where he could start to focus on the time that he has, work with counseling, and he's coming down here. He's regularly meeting with me. I think he should continue that way because I was not disclosing anything that I shouldn't have been, but I was being truthful about my life and the effects of what my actions are having on me right now in this state. But I still went into that environment. And within eight months in that environment, I was viciously stabbed 26 times. So this is how I began my prison sentence, the effect of that violence and the violence that I had previously went through both in my incarceration and outside, I guess, exacerbated the facts and my mental illness as well. First and foremost, it's access to the individual. The individuals within correctional environments can be moving around from uh, one unit to another. They can be attending court. They can be going to other programs or interventions. And being able to get to see an individual is sometimes the biggest barrier. On top of that, we have a situation where within provincial corrections, because individuals are on remand, they are rapidly rotating. The average length of stay within the Toronto South Detention Centre, for example, is 35 days. So you may see somebody at a certain point in time develop a treatment and care plan. By the time you see them, you come to see them again, they've already left the institution. This sort of rapidly rotating patient group means you have to adapt your practice to get as much information and development of a plan as soon as possible and in action of that plan so that the care delivery starts uh, straight away.
even if you're able to do that, we have limitations and uh, restrictions which are associated with uh, where we are practicing. We have restrictions in the formulary, what we can prescribe and how we can prescribe it. We have additional concerns regarding misuse of medications, hoarding of medications, diversion of medications to others, and all the risks that that uh, entails. And we have to be very mindful of that when prescribing treatments to ensure that on the one hand, we are acting in a way which is going to be beneficial for that individual, but also that we've minimized risk. Medications which may be very helpful for that person may raise the risk of that person being bullied or muscled for that medication from others. It may well be that that individual suffers greater negative consequences than the positive benefits. The policy is to try and keep prisoners as close to their home communities as possible. But the policy and the reality are two entirely different things. As you point out, you often find that people's emotional connection will be in the north or in a different jurisdiction, and these people are confined miles from where they get their comfort. It's particularly, I think, challenging for people from for example, Nunavut, where the language is different, the culture is different, the food is different, and then they're, they tend to be incarcerated if it's a serious offense in the South, where they're extremely alienated from their home culture. So you see this a lot, and it's difficult to know exactly what to do to make that better. But I think there are many things that we need to do to affect their overall well-being, and that kind of transferring and isolation is a significant problem. Just so everybody knows, once you're transferred, even though you are transferred with what looks like a credit card, has its little chip on it, you can put it into your system and run it. You're not afforded the ability until a week or two weeks after you're in that facility for them to turn on your pin to have all your numbers up because you're only afforded a certain number amount of numbers on side of your call list. Like you, you just can't call whoever you want. So whoever is important to your list. It's so hard to contact them until they turn on the pin, you start the process. It has like a psychological effect on you because now you're stuck around other people who you don't know, or you may know there, no one is as, as important as your family or the people outside who mean the most to you. If you can't reach out to them, the first people that you do reach out to are the people that are around you. And if they don't have nothing positive to offer you, it only becomes a negative against a negative against a negative. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to be a barrier for healthcare accessibility in Ontario and within Canada at large. In what ways has the pandemic impacted the Canadian correctional system and the reintegration process? COVID has decimated the federal prison system. I would say there's probably 12,000 prisoners in the federal institutions and about 1,600 of them contracted COVID. About, and six of them died from COVID. We thought we left that behind, but there's recently been a massive outbreak in Dorchester. And it's the first time that uh, COVID had hit one of the prisons in Dorchester. But because of the congregate living environment, because of the problems with hygiene, because of the health concerns that a lot of prisoners have in any event, once a contagious disease gets in there, it spreads very rapidly and very quickly. It really had a very devastating effect. The disease itself, and even more devastating, has been CSC's response to 
COVID-19, which as the correctional investigator described it, they have decided to combat COVID-19 with extreme isolation. Prisoners have been subjected to extremely long periods of isolation, which we know does significant damage to their mental and physical well-being. They have essentially been warehoused because uh, visitors have not been allowed into the prisons. There have been no programming. So any progress on their correctional plans have been basically waylaid. People have been enormously depressed. I'm hearing that the level of violence has gone up significantly. It's just been a horrible experience for the federal prison system. With respect to the vaccination process, nationally, Canada is taking steps to vaccinate the most vulnerable among us from 5 to 11-year-olds to giving a booster shot to immunocompromised individuals. Can you speak about the vaccination process in the Canadian correctional system? I think that was pretty much a good news story in that they were able to procure a sufficient amount of vaccine to make it available to all of the prisoners in the federal prison system. And they've had uptake of about 70, 75% of prisoners are double vaxxed, which is great, but it it causes me some concern. If you look at an institution like Dorchester, where we're currently experiencing this outbreak, they had 77% of the prisoners had received double vaccinations. There's been a pretty significant spread where I think it's more than 50 prisoners have contracted the disease. I don't know if it's because the vaccination is only effective on 85% effective or something. I think it's an object lesson to the fact that even if there is a high take up of vaccinations, if that virus gets in the prisons, it can be pretty damaging, even when they are vaccinated. We briefly introduced the John Howard Society earlier in this episode. Lawrence and Catherine tell us more about how they got involved in this work, their roles at the organization, and their goals. Well, I knew of the John Howard for a long time. I didn't know everything that they did, but I knew that they assisted inmates in prison, whatever they're going through. At the time, reaching out to the John Howard Society, I was placed in the shoe for seven years, the Supermax, on allegations that I was a gang leader and I was sending inmates to attack other inmates within the prison system and areas. They didn't prove none of this. It took a toll on me. It it resulted into 580 consecutive days of administrative segregation until I was released. This was within three institutions and provinces, Edmonton Institution, Saskatchewan Penitentiary, and then the Supermax itself. And after about four or five years in the shoe and continuing to try to fight against my detention in the shoe, I reached out to the John Howard Society in an attempt to challenge the legality of my detention. Unfortunately, when I tried to exercise my rights at that time uh, to habeas corpus, I was denied even the ability to speak inside of the courtroom, even though it was my rights that were being violated, even though I could speak the best to the legalities of my detention. I was denied the opportunity and the habeas corpus was disregarded. I remained in the SHU until I was involuntarily transferred from the SHU to Millhaven Institution. Throughout that time, I continued to stay in contact with Catherine Latimer and Mary Jose Howard, which was more than just a receptionist to that office. She was everything. She was a program officer, the financial officer. She did it all. And she plus took our calls. She was the one who actually introduced me to Catherine. So I stayed in contact with both of them. I'm still in contact with both of them today. But I came out 
I was going to try to be successful in trying to change my life and to try to give myself an opportunity to live like a normal citizen who doesn't commit crime on a, a daily basis uh, or on any basis at all. I was hired shortly after I came out of prison through the John Howard Society as a consultant because I was offered an opportunity to speak at the Senate committee trying to end segregation, which we ended in name, but we haven't in format because inmates are still being subjected to that type of mental deprivation and, and torture. It's disgusting. They just changed the name and tried to offer what they thought they could get away with. I would say the majority of the work is on reintegration. The John Howard Society of Canada has a particular interest in what's happening behind bars, particularly in federal institutions. And we have entered into a number of pieces of legislation and litigation to try and improve things. So, for example, after the Ashley Smith case, which was a young Indigenous woman who died while in an administrative segregation cell, this has been a longstanding problem, the kind of mental anguish and hardship that is faced by people who are locked away in that form of isolation. We entered into litigation to try and establish that that indeterminate isolation was a violation of people's charter rights. That's the kind of thing that we do is to try and ensure that the laws are respected and that there's a more humane approach and effective approach for dealing with prisoners really depends on the John Howard Society. We're mainly focused on supporting rehabilitation and reintegration. So we run a lot of halfway houses across the country. And these are second stage housing. Basically, after people leave prison, they come into the halfway houses. But our mandate really is to try and support people as they're coming out of prison to help them lead crime-free lives. Most people, when they're leaving prisons, want to leave that lifestyle behind them and want to be contributing citizens. They face a lot of hurdles uh, to to get there. We're there to sort of walk with them and see if we can't help them achieve their goals. Reintegration or the process of re-entry into society following release from prison can be a challenging journey. Lawrence tells us about the difficulties of reintegration and Catherine highlights some of the supports and services provided by the John Howard Society for individuals during this transition. Did you feel like you could reintegrate well? Once you were released, did you have any support to get back on your feet? Amazingly, I did have a very positive support, even though it was limited in time and financial. I did make the conscious decision when I was coming out that no matter what CSC was throwing at me, and I'll explain that in a minute, I was going to change and I was going to try to do everything I could to integrate back into society while proving them wrong because they had me pegged as somebody who was extremely dangerous, who was going to reoffend, who was going to give in. And on my way out and on my transition, even though I was uh, trying to adopt this new form of life that I was going to try to take, I was being subjected to A10.2, which is I'm transitioning, even though I'm leaving custody and I don't have no charges, I finished all my time. So I'm not going to a halfway house or anything that in their eyes that could monitor me. They said that I was extremely dangerous and placed me on A10.2. That meant that I was immediately arrested as soon as I was released from CSC custody. 
and taken to court, even though I didn't have a charge. If I didn't sign on to a bail, I would immediately be placed into custody until I signed on to the bail or fought the case and won. If not, I would have stayed in custody. And sometimes these hearings take more than a year to have. So it would have been a year in detention custody without a charge. So I signed on to the bail successfully. I did it without fail. I was on this for two years. Successfully, I got off of it. But the pressures that I faced immediately upon leaving custody and having to do this five years up until now was still that I face. When I was released from custody, the medication regime was cut because I was only given two weeks of medication. Even when you go to a pharmacy and you go for your prescription, you would have been given 30 days and then you come back, right? Well, they gave me two weeks and that's the program that they offer any individual who's leaving federal custody. A lot of people might not be and are not on the same trajectory that I was coming out with the same mindset because they haven't been offered that inside. So if they were automatically deprived of medication, it feels like it's a trap shot and it it feels like you're endangering not only the individual who's going out for failure, but you're endangering society in a state where you know better. You know what this individual has done in, in custody not to cast a doubt upon this person coming out to change, but you know what the regime was medically. You had commitments that should have been more than a two-week span. And uh, right now, I'm still on the list for a family doctor in the Kingston region. It's hard to fathom. I've had to supplement immediately after the loss of my medication, outside it becoming financially too much of a burden on me because of the dispensing fees that I had to pay every day. Frankly, it's very difficult. Prisoners are released with two weeks of medicines. Uh, And if they're medicines for psychiatric conditions, it gives you an impossible window to get them lined up with OHIP or whatever the provincial healthcare provider is to find them a psychiatrist who will prescribe the medications that they need in the timelines. So what you're doing or what you have is people who are experiencing serious mental health issues. So they're already anxious because they're going through a significant transition. It's not easy going from a prison into to the community, you're compounding that by destabilizing their mental health condition by limiting or having them run out of the medication that they need to keep stable. It's a very serious problem. It's one that many have been raising that uh, prisoners should be released with ID and with continuity of care so that they're immediately absorbed into the provincial health care systems. So one of the reasons why we're bringing this constitutional challenge is that there's no reason to have this gap. There's no reason, as far as we can see, to deny people the provincial health care coverage that they had before they went into prison, simply because they got a sentence. So they're sentenced to a deprivation of liberty, not to a deprivation of health care. And the challenge they get of being reinstated into their provincial health care systems is sufficiently difficult that it creates a real barrier to them succeeding when they're trying to make their re-entry into the community. Still on the topic of reintegration, but slightly different, I'm wondering if John Howard also has programs to help inmates who are looking for other sorts of uh, housing, so getting jobs and kind of establishing themselves in the society. 
We do. Uh, we do indeed try and provide all the services that people need to become established in the community. We're working on one right now, which is a big challenge, which is to find people adequate housing. So the number of people leaving prisons who find themselves in homelessness is uh, pretty significant. There's active discrimination among a lot of landlords and a lot of housing opportunities against people who have a criminal record or criminal background. So we actually are very grateful to CMHC who've given us some resources for a solution lab to look at this complex housing problem to try and come up with some viable solutions to try and improve the housing prospects for prisoners or former prisoners when they're coming back into the community. So we're actively engaged on that. Another thing that your listeners might be interested in is there's the federal government, in particular the Minister for Public Safety, is required to produce a national framework to reduce recidivism by the end of June of this year. Every three years after that, he will need to report on the progress that he's making to support the reduction in recidivism of people coming out of federal prisons. And of course, one of the big issues is trying to improve their access to medical assistance uh, as they're coming out would be good to include something like that in the framework so that it becomes a goal and an objective against which we can make some improvements or at least be held to account if improvements are not being made. I think, first of all, we need to look at, are we doing for prisoners what is available to the rest of our population? The folks in prison, in correctional settings, are often viewed by society as being somehow different, somehow separate from us. They aren't different. They are us. And we should be supporting them and caring for them in the same way as we would be caring for anybody else within our society. We should give them the same level of care that all of us expect and require when we need it in the community. We have a system in Canada where you have provincial correctional systems and uh, correctional services Canada, which manages federal prisoners. And there's a discrepancy between what care you can get federally and what care you get provincially. I think we do need to try and square those differences so that they get the same care, the best care, in both of those situations. Finally, being able to access Schedule 1 mental health services at a medium secure level provincially in order to allow individuals who are the sickest individuals in the correctional environment to go out to hospital under the Mental Health Act, utilize the Healthcare Consent Act, get the care and treatment they need, and be able to then either return to the correctional environment or go directly into the community as quickly as possible. We know that untreated illness leads to individuals having a poorer prognosis. We've shown that early identification, early screening, early triage, and early treatment is positive for the jail environment. It reduces challenges for the institution, but it's tremendously valuable for each individual that we care for. I think it's definitely clear that more work needs to be done. I think that's undeniable. But do you think having more honest conversations like this one, for instance, is useful in improving care in prisons and after release? 
I really do. I think allowing those who have been affected by the incarceration and what has happened inside, the ability to have a voice, which is why I do uh, podcasting myself, uh, Voices Inside It Out. I'm trying to shed light because if we don't talk about these things on a regular basis and talk about the seriousness of the impact, also sue for these things within the court systems, we are in fact turning a blind eye to what's going on, hoping that there's going to be other individuals that would cure the problem. And that takes all of us coming together and asking ourselves as a society, is what's happening here right? If it's not, then we have to come up with another plan. And that's what these politicians are for when we're relying on them. But uh, you you have to understand when they're putting so much effort into the CCRA, which is the legislation that guides the Correctional Service of Canada, which is their format and its regulations, when they're implementing these legislations without these protective measures and or a separation, we're kidding ourselves. Because as a society, the people who have been sent to these prisons, speaking for the people in my country, the people who have been sent to these prisons have committed crimes against citizens and against people within our country and its citizens. They need to be held accountable while they're held in custody and coming back out. If we're just saying that they're going to be subjected to long-term states of punishment, then we're saying that their charter rights are no longer in existence because they're inside of a federal building. There needs to be more integration with society being able to get into these facilities and have more transparency within the situational aspects and problems that are going on within them. And be they medical, and like I said, with the inspiration of providing programming for these people to come back to society to lower their rate of uh, recidivism. And that will only happen when we can, we still have a say. Because sometimes I feel that we've allowed the Correctional Service of Canada to, to be in such a, a position of control that it's not being held accountable for its actions. Not the deaths in custody, not the stabbings in custody, not the staff assaults against inmates in custody, not health care. There's a wide range of what affects a person's sentence while they're in there. And we should have more of a say-so when it comes to those protections, especially when they're supposed to be provided by our charter. But it seems that even though if we say we have these charter rights, they're illusionary because I'll say I have the right to life, liberty and security, the person. And I also have the right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment under seven and 12. But I could be left in states of excessive detention without resolve. It's unacceptable. There has to be more transparency. I would love to hear a bit more about your podcast. Maybe a brief intro for our listeners. What kind of content do you cover on there? And what does it mean to you? My podcast means everything to me. When I first came out of prison, I had many jobs through the John Howard Society because I believed in these jobs. I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression here. I'm just a consultant. I'm provided whatever monies they can afford with in these situations for staff like myself with lived experience. This is not a job that you take for your career because I, I just, you're just not going to get paid for it. I do this because I believe in it. And it comes from the heart and the things that I've went through my own prison experience and the things that I've seen with my own eyes inside of the service of Canada. Coming out and being able to be a consultant with the John Howard Society, it gave me the ability to also do program arts inside and out. 
Arts Inside and Out was inside of Kingston Penn. People could come in, they would do the tour, they'd come into the back room after the tour on their way out, and they would be able to hear from an inmate with lived experience. I met judges, police officers, people who were just curious. It opened up a door for communication between me and so many other citizens who came just into this area. As a consultant through this uh, Arts Inside and Out program, I think it opened up the next trajectory, which was the podcasting and trying to get as many stories as I could out there that revolve around serious problems with the prison system. We asked our guests if they had any final messages to share with our listeners. My final comment is that there is so much more work to do. We've come a long way, but there is a lot more to do. If we continue on the road we're on, there is so much advantage to society uh, that can be gained. I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to sit here and uh, listen to these concerns that are within the service over here and within our society. Also to weigh it against what's going on in your countries and in your societies so that there may be a protection for those who are left inside as they still do have rights. The more communication that we have with each other, the more time that we take to sit here and listen to one another and interact through Q&A is even better. A lot can be achieved through that. It was important because former prisoners do face a lot of challenges as they're coming back into the communities. And we thought it was a good idea to share the stories of those who have been in the community for some time with those who are about to embark on this journey to indicate the kind of challenges that they experienced and how they overcame them and to give hope to people that you can overcome these challenges. There are strategies and people out there who want to see you succeed and will step in to help you. Think if I have communicated that the quality of health care that's provided to federal prisoners is greatly inferior to what we in the community receive. I think that's an important message. I think it's important for people to understand that people, when they're sentenced to prison, they're deprived of their liberty, but they shouldn't be deprived of their access to health care in the way that the rest of us receive it. So I think some urgent action needs to be taken to ensure that there is adequate health care for prisoners. Not to do that ends up hurting the community anyway, because diseases are, that are not effectively treated are getting worse, and then they come back into the community at a higher cost, both in terms of the actual medical cost, but also in terms of people's ability to rehabilitate and reintegrate success and make a contribution to the community. Improving healthcare is a significant priority for us, and we hope that your listeners will support us in trying to advocate for better healthcare for federal prisoners. When it comes to health in our correctional systems, this episode only scratches the surface. Much more needs to be uncovered to get a better picture of the political and moral nuances of this topic. If you'd like to learn more, please see our show notes. As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Lawrence De Silva, Catherine Latimer, and Dr. Kieran Patel. And of course, thank you for listening. If you're interested in getting involved in advocating for the well-being of inmates, you can contact the John Howard Society directly. The link is in our show notes. Stay tuned for our next episode in the new year. And don't forget to check out the Voices Inside Now podcast hosted by Lawrence and Catherine, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by myself, Kayvon, and Atifa. Zainab, Angela, Junaid, and Vina helped with content, and Ukreti was our audio engineer, Braden helped conduct interviews, and Noor was our executive producer. 
Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Sciences in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and be sure to leave us five stars.